Would you pray with me? Lord, we do know that one day this, this world as we know it will come to an end. And whether it is today or 10 millennia from now, only you know. But help us, your people, to be faithful in the interim, to live our lives in the meantime, as if you were living your life in our skin. As we prepare to read and reflect on your word, may your Holy Spirit fill us and guide us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Today, I think, is one of those days when I'm just going to go old school with everybody and everything. Uh, I actually, I want to try and accomplish three very simple goals today. One, I want to give just very basic teaching in the parables that Jesus taught. Second, I'll look at one of those parables from Matthew 25 with you. And then finally, I'm just kind of going to wonder out loud about that particular parable. The Bible is filled with parables. It's not just New Testament, it's Old Testament as well. And I want to commend to you, how many of you are preachers? Not even you, Deanne? I want to commend to you a book by one of my seminary professors entitled Preaching in the Literary Forms of the Bible. Now, even if you're not a preacher, I would encourage you to get this because it will open up the various different kinds of literature that are in the Bible and help you understand them in new ways. Tom Long was one of my seminary professors when I was working on my second master's on my doctorate. I took classes under him as well. And in that book, he talks about parables in a way that opened my understanding of the parables in general. He says that, that basically biblical scholars recognize three different kinds of parables. The first parable that Tom talks about is what he calls, what scholars call a code parable. Now, this is an allegory, and it's called a code parable because as insiders within the Christian circle, we really kind of have the, the ability, we have the knowledge of how to break the code of the parable. An allegory, you know, lines everything up neatly. A equals X, B equals Y, C equals Z. If you look at some of the parables that Jesus taught, it's easy to see that these are, are code parables. They're allegories like uh, the parable of the weeds or the parable of the wicked tenants. Those are code parables. They're allegories. The second kind of parable that, that scholars describe is what they call a vessel parable. Now, vessel parables are really function as similes. Similes join the known and the unknown at one juncture and one juncture only. Think about the, um, think about the baptismal font here, which interestingly enough, there's a communion cup left from last week. <laughs> this is a vessel. It holds something. So, a vessel parable, like the bowl in the baptismal font, holds something. It joins them. So, you know, suppose someone said, you know, she is like a bird. That's a simile. 
It doesn't mean she has feathers or a beak or, or clawed feet. Maybe it means she's simply graceful. So vessel parables like the parable of the mustard seed. That's a vessel parable. It, it holds something. It helps us to recognize something. Now the third kind of parable is what scholars call object of art parables. I remember a number of years ago being in the Louvre in Paris and looking at the mobs standing there looking at the Mona Lisa. There's something about an object of art that just stops you in your track and makes you look at it. An object of art parable functions like a metaphor. It, it says that A is symbolically like B. They're, they're not the same thing, but they symbolize one another. And the object of art parables are designed to draw you into the story and really to kind of shock you into a new way of seeing reality. You look at an object of art and the tendency is to just look at it and say, oh, wow. And object of art parables help us to understand the work of God in this world in new ways. For instance, the laborers in the vineyard is an object of art parables. Now, the, the, the downfall is that most of us tend to think of all the parables alike. And so we look at them and we think that every parable is an allegory. And like Vicki was talking about last week, people always trying to force things to mean this is when Jesus is coming back. If you force every parable into the same mold, it gets twisted and distorted. It's a little bit like following the motorcycle instead of running for the finish line. I don't know how many of you watched this this past Tuesday morning when this poor lady who had led the Peachtree Road Race was charging. She was just yards from the finish line and the motorcycle pulled off and she followed the motorcycle and suddenly in four seconds went from first place to fourth place and it was a $7,000 mistake on her part. You want to keep your eyes on the finish line, not on the motorcycle. <laughs> and you want to keep your eyes on the Word of God and not try to force it into the mold that you are thinking about. So let's take a look at one of these parables that comes from the 25th chapter of Matthew's Gospel, uh, beginning to read at verse 14. It'll be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, each according to his ability. Pay attention to that line, each according to his ability. We'll come back to that. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them. He made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now, after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. He who had received five talents came forward, bringing five, five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here, I've made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also, who had the two talents, came forward saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here, I've made two talents more. 
exactly the same language as the previous servant. His master said to him, and this is exactly the same language, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also who had received the one talent came forward and said, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid. And I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, what you have is yours. His master answered him. Now, I could play with this for a minute. I'm not going to do it. But later today, go over this on your own. What tone did Jesus use when he told this story? You wicked, slothful servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers and at my coming I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But for the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast that, that worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Any questions? <laughs> May the same Holy Spirit who inspired the writing and preservation of these words inspire them for our understanding as well. Okay, what kind of parable is this? Is this a code parable? Is it an allegory? Don't answer out loud. You don't want to be embarrassed if you get it wrong. Is this an allegory? A equals X, B equals Y, C equals Z. Is, is this a vessel parable, a simile? You know, it uh, joins the known and the unknown at one, or is it an object of art parable? Don't say it out loud, but picture in your mind your answer. Which one is it? And the answer is object of art. How many of you got it right? Very good, children, very good. It really is a very simple story that Jesus has conjured up here and created. It's about four characters. There's a master, and there are three servants. The servants, remember I said each according to his ability, pay attention to that because we'll come back to it. Most of us think that we're all created with the same skill set, talents, and abilities. That's not true, folks. Each of us has differing talents and abilities. There was a story that took place a couple of weeks ago at the European Track and Field Championships. This is uh, a picture of the beginning of the 110-meter hurdles. Who do you think came in last in this race? It's the lady from Belgium there on the right, lady from Portugal. I don't know what her place was. But the story behind this is that each nation, everybody had their team. So there's a team from Belgium, from Port, uh, Portugal, from France, from Spain, from Great Britain. All these teams come together. Everyone on the team is expected to perform and score points for their team. But the day before the 110-meter hurdle event, the two hurdlers were discovered to both be injured. So the team coach went to the shot putter and said, would you be willing to run the hurdles? He said, if we don't have anyone run the hurdles, we're going to lose team points 
and the team points add up? She said, absolutely, I'll do it. So she steps in, go home this afternoon, Google this. It's absolutely fascinating to watch. The interesting thing is that at the end of the race, when she comes in about two days after everyone else, <laughs> all of the other runners come up and mob her and affirm her for what she did. Now, I wouldn't want that lady from Portugal putting the shot any more than I would want the shot putter running the 110-meter hurdles. They had different skill sets, different abilities, as the people in this story that Jesus tells. Differing levels of ability. One got five talents, one got two talents, one got one talent. Now, the context of this story, and I think it's always important to take a step back and, and look at what's going on around this, is that Jesus is having a private conversation with his disciples. So this is a story that is being told to the followers of Jesus, just like you. This is not to the, the, the mass crowds who are some on the inside and some on the outside. This is a story that's been being told to the people who are sold out followers of Jesus. But in this particular story, while he's talking to the disciples, he is talking about the religious leaders. Think about the religious leaders of the day to whom much had been given, much was expected, and little result came out. So when he's talking to the disciples, he's helping them recognize that the religious leaders were like the person with the one parable, afraid to take a risk, just holding on to what's been given to them, not doing anything with it. And one of the interesting things about object of art parables is that they unconsciously pull us into the story in such a way that we identify with one of the characters. So think about that. As you heard that story, as you think about that story, consciously or unconsciously, who do you identify with? You the master? You one of the servants who got five or two talents and doubled the investment? Are you like the one who received the talent and went and dug a hole and hid it in the ground? You know, interestingly in the story, the, the master never really changes. The master is the same. The difference that we see in the master is based on the results of the people who had received talents and what they did with them. Two servants got what the master gave them, doubled those talents, five turned into ten, two turned into four, and the master says, enter the joy of your master. Interestingly enough, the, the word that is used for joy has behind it the sense of festival joy. If you've ever been to Mardi Gras, yeah, somebody said, whoo, been there, done that. Um, that's a festival. That's a multi-day, multi-sometimes-week party. And it is a blowout. And so, you know, this line that we all long to hear, hope to hear, expect to hear, pray to hear, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of your master. Jesus 
is saying that we who have received gifts, talents, abilities from him and use them for his glory are going to be invited to the party of parties. But that last servant, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not plow, gathering where you did not sow. So I took it and I hid it in the ground. You wicked and slothful servant. Now was it that somber? You wicked. Or did he scream it? You wicked and slothful servant. Notice that servant loses what had been given to him. It's taken away and given to the others. You know, the, the message of this object of art is, is really simple, that you and I are called to take the gifts that God has given us and put them to work to build His kingdom. You all have been around here a while, some of you longer than others. And my observation is that too many of us look at our spiritual lives like a sponge. You know, I help out with the dishes at my house. Not every night, not all the time, but I know how to use a sponge. And one of the things I have learned about a sponge is that it can only absorb so much fluid before you have to squeeze some out in order for it to absorb more. Too many of us, I think, are like sponges that just try to absorb, soak up, but we never squeeze anything out. We come to worship, we listen to sermons, we appreciate incredible music, it lifts our souls, we participate in Bible studies, we can quote books of the Bible ad nauseum, we know all kinds of fine points, and we just keep trying to soak up more and more and more and more. But friends, your soul, like a sponge, can only absorb more if it's wrung out. Now, I'm not talking about the trials and the tribulations of life. I'm talking about making an investment in the lives of other people. Why don't we use the gifts that God has given us and invest in the lives of others. A couple of years ago, I was working with my colleague Ann Henry on a mentoring program here at the church. And one of the things that we discovered was that there are people in this church who have been actively involved in the life of faith for years, if not decades, but still carry a spiritual inferiority complex. Oh, I don't think I could lead anybody else. I, I, I don't think I could talk to anybody about their spiritual. I don't know that I could do that. It's a little bit like that servant who said, ah, oh, I'm afraid of this fellow, so I'm going to take this and, and hide it in the ground. And, and I don't want to take a risk. I, I don't want to put any effort into this. I just want to soak up all that I can so that when that day comes, 
I'm ready. But you can only soak up so much until you've got to squeeze it out to be able to soak up more. This past Friday morning, I was down in the um, office in my home in the basement having my daily devotions. And, and part of what I'm doing is uh, reading for the umpteenth time through Oswald Chambers' My Utmost for His Highest. And in Friday's entry, I stumbled across this. God's grace produces men and women with a strong family likeness to Jesus Christ, not pampered, spoiled weaklings. It takes a tremendous amount of discipline to live the life, to live the worthy and excellent life of a disciple of Jesus in the realities of today's life. And it's always necessary for us to make an effort to live a life of worth and excellence. I wonder if maybe this parable at this point, this year, in the life of this church today, maybe it's calling us to squeeze that sponge out, to take the gifts, talents, and abilities that that God has given each of us. And, And remember, our abilities are different and use them in the lives of other people. Let me ask you a question, rhetorical question. I don't want an answer to this, but but think about it for a minute. Who is someone who helped you grow spiritually? Who is someone who invested in you spiritually? You know, I spend a lot of uh, time in my work working with men. Women as well, but more with men than women. Breakfasts, coffees, lunches, um, doing guy stuff. And I ask this question, and more often than not what I hear is, um, yeah, I hear a lot of family, but I hear teachers, I hear coaches, I hear scout leaders. I hear people who were their supervisors early in their career, not only, the, not only helping them get merit badges or a promotion, but helping them learn how to live their lives. More often than not, it takes somebody outside the family to help us grow in our spiritual life. And maybe God's calling you to be that person in someone's life. Let me give you a very simple, simple, silly illustration uh, of why it takes somebody outside the family to move the needle. It has nothing to do with spiritual life. Liv and I, early in our marriage, um, were living in Augusta, Georgia, and the YMCA had just built and opened a new YMCA there in Augusta. I was a fitness fanatic at the time. I know you can't believe it looking at me today. Uh, This was 40 years ago, folks. Um, And so I talked to Lib and I said, Lib, we should join the Y. And I went into the lecture with her. You know, if three times a week for 30 minutes a time, you elevate your heart rate to 70 to 80% of its maximum, and here's the formula with how you determine what that is, then, you know, you will experience a healthier and a longer life. I must have said this 20 dozen times. So finally, one day I said, let's just go tour the Y. So we go to the Y and we tour the Y. 
And the program director of the Y takes us around, shows us, you know, the weight room and the fitness center and, the, you know, this room and that room. And, the, you know, there's the men's locker room and the women's locker room. There's the pool. There's the sauna. There's the steam room. And he comes back and he sits down with us and he says, now here's the deal, folks. If three times a week, <laughs> for 30 minutes a time, I kid you not, this is what happened, almost verbatim. You elevate your heart rate to 70 to 80%. Here's the formula. This is how you figure out what it is. Then you will experience a healthier and a longer life, and you will stave off disease. And Lib looked at me and said, we should do this. <laughs> oh, wow. I said, okay. You see, sometimes, and, and those of you who have allowed your children to live beyond the teenage years know that it takes someone outside the family to move the needle. You're that person in someone's life. How are you going to move the needle? By the grace of God in someone else's life. When the master comes back, whenever that is, however it transpires, however it untolds, whether you got five talents or two talents or one talent, I think the simple question is going to be, what did you do with what I gave you? What did you do with what I gave you? Let's pray together. Holy and loving God, thank you for sending people into the circle of our lives to move the needle for each of us. To help us to, to hear your word and your invitation to be shaped by your grace and your mercy. To awaken in us the realization that we have received gifts and talents and abilities. And we are called to use them not only for your glory, but also to help other people discover the gifts, talents, and abilities that you have given to them. I pray for these men and women here today and ask that you would bless them, that you would breathe Holy Spirit into them and help them to hear your call and your invitation to give you what you have given to us. In Jesus' name, amen.